J Crew. We are coming off two great live shows in San Diego and Phoenix, and today we are bringing you two interviews we've recorded recently. We talked to Sarah Hurwitz, a former Obama speechwriter with a new book out on Judaism, and Jackson Crawford, a professor of Norse mythology who we met in Denver. But first, some news of the Jews, live from the Valley of the Sun JCC in Phoenix, Arizona. Before we begin the show proper, which will happen in a moment or two, this is some all, point we'll start. I want to tell you that for any gentleman here who happened to have used the men's room and noticed that the um, the little flyers about upcoming events that are normally above the urinals are gone. You're wondering why? It's because I took them, and <laughs> I did that because I wanted to tell you all what's coming up. So, so gross. <laughs> one of the urinals is the adult happenings urinal, and the other one is the youth and family happenings urinal. You'd think the youth happenings urinal would actually be lower. It's not. It's the same height. So just chew on that for a moment. Adults, on Wednesday, you can keep calm and play mahjong. That's a um, great pun. Also, do you know that I heard people call it maj now? Do people do that here? Amazing. Is it like when the JCC became the J? Well, we're in a J right now, right? Mahjong became maj. not a JCC. When the J would play the maj. Are you ready? Hello, Phoenix! <laughs> This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Wow, crickets, crickets, guys. <laughs> and Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom. Tonight, we come to you from a very, very energetic audience at the Valley of the Sun JCC in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm just happy that I'm here because it wasn't easy to get here today. You'd think getting from San Diego to Phoenix would be, I mean, I should have just rented a car. It would have been about five and a half, six hours. Instead, somehow I booked myself a flight to LA from San Diego, which is an absurdity, and then a flight from LA to Phoenix. The first flight that I was on didn't take off. We, we got out onto the tarmac and then the engines didn't work, so we had to roll back. So I spent several hours in the San Diego airport before they found another plane. Then we finally got LA to Phoenix and apparently there were thunderstorms over Phoenix, which is not something, it's just like not something you hear often. And then I finally made it in. I just want to say I'm so happy to be here. But I did not come from the farthest away or have the most difficult trip. Well, you, you were here for a while. I've been here for a while because like a normal person, I took the 45-minute flight from San Diego to Phoenix yesterday. Um, so I'm very well acquainted with the, with the Phoenix area. I went shopping this afternoon. You're like a local now. Yeah, I went to Francis. I went to local Nomad. I got all my Hanukkah gifts. I basically like, I live here now. And I love it. <laughs> and Liel? Well, I woke up this morning in Basel which is the Scottsdale of Switzerland, for those of you who don't know. I was spending the night at the Trois Rois Hotel, which is where Herzl, some years ago, came to found the Jewish state. And I gotta tell you, I felt so sorry for Herzl because it's such a nice hotel, and you could totally see him sitting there in this like luxury five-star Swiss-German hotel and saying, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna create a Jewish state, and it's gonna be exactly as nice as all of this they're going to have a good government. It's going to work perfectly well. Everything's going to be clean. Everyone's going to be polite. It's going to run on time. I'm going to be like, dude, it didn't happen that way. You might have stayed in the hotel. It's great. If you will it, there will be a third election. <laughs> As, Herzl, they say. As they say. Herzl doesn't need to know that. 
He's very sensitive. Okay, but moving on to news of the Jews. Tablet sends you off to these very fancy places. Yes. Uh, we expect nothing more than that you at least come back with a little good news of the Jews from around the world. A little you know, NOTJ from Europe. Was there any good news of the Jews in Switzerland while you were there? Before going to Basel, I was in Geneva, where I encountered what, on a serious note, I have to say, was a shocking incident of anti-Semitism. I was walking down the street when I learned that the most popular bagel chain in Geneva is called Bagelstein. I think of it as Bagelstein. Like, you I know, th the Bagelsteins. I think in I their think mind, the it's the Bagelstein. Bagelstein. Then they have the bagel of the month, and it is, and we have a, a little picture of it here. He, sent, he texted us a picture of the bagel of the month poster. Le bagel de Noël. Now here's the thing, Geneva. Christmas you're, bagel? You're welcome to bagels. It's okay. We're not going to make a big deal of it. You could open your little stores and serve bagels with me. It's like, don't do a Christmas bagel. And if you do do a Christmas bagel, don't do it with foie gras and like There's like an onion confit. And uh, onion confit, which is really kind of insulting to, to our tradition. But it does make me think that I feel like there's, I wonder if there's like a green and red like Christmas rainbow bagel. That must exist, right? Well, we'll be goes, eating them with like a rainbow schmear. This goes to Liel's point that bagels have, in fact, we've, Jews have lost them entirely. Some of yeah. you have heard us talk about this. They're now the least Jewish food imaginable. But seeing this kind of really, um, you know, enrage my the, the tribal element with me. I think we need to reclaim a Christian holiday food for the Jews. Uh, yes. I think we need to take, you know, this galette de roi that they serve in, in some of the French countries. I think we need to take this and serve it on Hanukkah or something. What's that, like, cake that comes in the thing? It's like a, a loaf? Panettone, yeah. That's the same thing? Oh, no, the Panettone. I want a Panettone, but I want it to be, like, blue and white. A Hanukkah Panettone. It was shocking. <laughs> That's for the Hanukkah episode. Also in News of the Jews, back stateside, YouTube has removed a video, some of you might have heard about this, of a uh, pastor in, I want to say Florida, because he must be in Florida. Because whenever someone says or does crazy shit. Crazy, crazy shit. Most it's, likely. It's Florida. It's from a, fl a Florida That's our view, swamp. not the Valley of Sun, Jason says. Um, <laughs> YouTube took down a video of a pastor, of Pastor Rick Wiles, saying that Donald Trump is, uh, the impeachment is being perpetrated by a Jew coup like coup d'etat, but the Jew coup. Uh, this is according to an article in The Independent. YouTube has removed video of a Florida pastor and radio host claiming the effort to impeach Donald Trump is a Jew coup, but his channel remains online. Rick Wiles is known for his anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and posted a video on his True News YouTube channel saying that's the way the Jews work. They are deceivers. They plot. They lie. They do whatever they have to do to accomplish their political agenda. So this kind of hits home for me because we call our listeners the J. Crew, which is like the Jew Crew. So when I hear about a Jew coup, I just think that there could be like some mixed marketing. And I don't want people to think that like the J. Crew is behind the Jew coup of the impeachment. It kind of makes you wonder like, what if Rick Wiles knew that there was a Jewish podcast that had had millions of downloads? being run out of New York City. It's like the Bayhive. Like, what are the things we could get the J. Crew to do? Like, what kind of, like, <laughs> governments that, can we topple? If we mobilized the yeah. J. Crew, what could... First of all, to me, it all it's just sounded like Sudoku, which is very funny. <laughs> but, but also, like, this is the thing that really gets me about anti-Semites. They assume such a great degree of organization on behalf of the Jews. Like, have you ever been to, like, any synagogue committee meeting? Do you really think we're capable of anything? Organizing a coup? We can't even organize it like a kiddush They're like, for the I'm men's club. <laughs> Insane. Everyone's always like looping in Marilyn. Like, <laughs> we're going to circle back. There's a lot of conference calls. We're going to table this for now. Yeah. <laughs>
Plus, it's now it's on November. When would we have done this? We were off for literally a month and a half just now. That's when would we have planned? <laughs> I think that's what we were doing. And, and we're those about to take another eight days to. off. All right, Stephanie, what do you got for news of the Jews? Okay, I got a I got a good headline for you. A Russian figure skater wore an Auschwitz-themed costume during a November competition while skating to music from Schindler's List. So this is a nutty story, and it's basically about how. This Russian figure skater, first of all, he danced to Schindler's List, which is apparently a very popular figure skating song, which is bizarre. It's up there with like Moulin Rouge and Carmen. It's like Schindler's List. And now apparently like Life is Beautiful, the theme song is, mm. is like snuck up. So basically what this guy was wearing was a costume. There's pictures of it online. That's like, most of it is a suit. And then like this piece of it is like a striped pajama with a, a Jewish star on it. And so the idea is that he was like half a prisoner, half an SS soldier. And you were just like, how many people did this go through? And no one was like, you know, I Nobody don't think this is a good idea. In his defense, he wanted to do a Shoah theme, the Claude Lanzmann movie. He wanted the whole six and a half hour or nine and a half hour routine. <laughs> just speed was, it up to four minutes. Yeah, it was just too long. Um, according to the International Skating Union, which is Russia's governing body of figure skating, the ISU understands that the use of the Star of David, right, because he had a yellow star on his, right, on his breast pocket, um, the use of the Star of David can be interpreted as offensive. However... We would like to point out that in his free skating program, Mr. Shupalov skates to the music of a renowned and award-winning movie. So basically, you can do anything you want, according to the Russians, if you have a Schindler's List soundtrack that like Jew washes it for you. And then you could be as unbelievably offensive but as also, you want. also, who thinks the Star of David is offensive? Like, that's not what I was offended by on the costume. Yeah. It was like the whole thing. It was the whole thing. So what this reminds I'm, me- I'm just offended by ice skating I am in totally general, offended by ice skating. <laughs> to be honest. Any sport where you can't, where the winning... Right, when it involves points. When it involves What's points. What's the point? If it's not objective, it's not a sport. Ask the East German judge. Right. Ask the East right. German judge who won. This did remind me of high school debate. In high school debate, one of the events, one of the like side events was interpretive reading. There was a year when this guy, David Cohen, who was from Toronto, read from Elie Wiesel's Night. And it was such a cheap move, right? Because who's not going to give high scores right. when you're reading Holocaust, right? And the next year, everyone was reading from Holocaust literature. The next year, it was like Primo Levi, Elie Wiesel, and like by not, basically, if you didn't, if you didn't do Holocaust literature, if, you, if it wasn't about genocide, you couldn't score above an eight. As the only Division One athlete among the three of us, yes. Stephanie. Yes, time someone brought that up. I was a fencer. As a D1 varsity fencer, how do you feel about figure skating? Be honest. Oh, I like it. I like to look at it every four years. I never noticed anyone was doing this to Schindler's List. I don't even think I would recognize the Schindler's List theme song. Would anyone hear? Oh, really? Someone, could someone hum it? I don't know. This sounds like every song I've ever heard in synagogue. more information about the Schindler's List ice skating drama, of course. So I called up Wall Street Journal reporter Louise Radnofsky. She is the newspaper's figure skating correspondent, and she's going to help me get to the bottom of this. Hi, Louise. Hi. Tell us what the latest hullabaloo is in the, in the dramatic world of figure skating. Well, figure skating has had for a long time skaters using music from movies about the Holocaust, Schindler's List, Life is Beautiful, a few new ones. And over time, skaters have become increasingly literal in their interpretation, usually around their costumes. And so this really hit peak outrage 
when the International Skating Union, in its wisdom, nominated for best costume a Russian skater who had worn an outfit that appeared to depict him as half SS guard, half concentration camp prisoner for Schindler's List program. Now, the ISU said that this was a mistake. They'd intended to nominate him for another costume, but it really did put a bit of a spotlight on this long 25-year-old relationship between the sport and this music, which some people think, however tastefully, artfully done, is still inappropriate. Is the Schindler's List theme song a good song to skate to? The music is beautiful. It works for figure skating purposes. It doesn't work perfectly. It's actually very hard to construct an entire four-minute-plus program out of the soundtrack. And so some skaters have had to splice it with other music, which has worked to varying degrees to further the controversy. There was a 2009 program in which the Russian ice dance couple spliced it with Fiddler on the Roof. And that one got pretty out there. Songs about Jews, yay. Yeah, and it opened and ended with the sound of gunfire. And it's pretty hard to do justice to by me explaining it. You can find it on YouTube if you look for it. I'm attaching a warning and even telling you this. There's a lot going on in it. That's all I'm going to say. If you're going to do the Schindler's List song, can you just take the song itself and not have a costume that's gray or bloody or whatever, these sort of photos that were part of your article? Or is it like you choose Moulin Rouge and then you dress French? Like, is there sort of, it always has to be tied into the theme of where the music comes from? You're only penalized for your costume if it doesn't square with your music. You're not necessarily penalized for your costume being overtly offensive. Some skaters do choose not to go too graphic in their Schindler's List costumes. They might wear, however, a smattering of sequins in order to make the costume look eye-catching in any way. And for some people, the idea that sparkles and Schindler's List would ever go together is also really jarring. I mean, the skating world itself doesn't see a problem with skating to Schindler's List, whoever you are. The outside world tends to react particularly negatively when a German skater is skating to Schindler's List, even if he or she is doing it in a fairly subdued, somber way. It's worth noting that Jason Brown, who's an American figure skater who's also Jewish, is skating to Schindler's List this season and has generally had his program positively received. He said that he had waited a number of years before skating to it because he wanted to make sure he had the maturity to do it justice. Israeli figure skaters have also used Schindler's List. Seems like it would just be easier to to just not deal with this at all, to pick a different song. But are you saying that this is just like such a good song that people can't stop choosing it? I think it's fair to say that skaters tend to gravitate towards tried and tested pieces of music. And for whatever reason, Schindler's List and to a lesser extent Life is Beautiful is a tried and tested skating program. And skaters haven't really been deterred by some of the outrage that has erupted over our previous skaters. The composer of that song is John Williams, and he did a lot of other soundtracks for for films. And there are a lot of like equally evocative sounding songs. And I guess I don't mean to keep drilling down on this, but like what about the song maybe? Could you explain it? Could you break it down a little bit? I guess I'm curious like what it is about the songs. John Williams' soundtracks work really well for skaters, not just Schindler's List. And there's a reason they keep going back to soundtracks. One, because you can more simply tell a story. It's very clear what the the soundtrack is trying to do. And for whatever reason, they kind of splice down well to four minutes. But in addition, some skaters say it's 
personally meaningful to them to try and show their artistic range in a way that includes dealing with something very deep uh, and heavy. I'm not trying to make light of it by using these words, but this is kind of how people describe it. And a few skaters do say that they're also trying to use it because they want to send some kind of message. We talked to Paul Wiley, for example, who did one of the earliest Schindler's List programs, and he felt like as a non-Jew skating to this, he wanted to explore the idea of how he would have reacted and whether he would have been caught up in Nazi hysteria as a German citizen had he been one at the time. And he, at one point in the program, does a Nazi salute, which he then forces his hand down to end as a way of showing that he is nearly caught up in something and then is choosing to reject it. Sort of reminds me of when actors, they sort of take on their Holocaust role. And it's like usually something that they'll win an Oscar for. And there's sort of a bit of a cynicism about that. So is there an emotional side that they're playing to this idea of like, look how brave I am, look how bold I am, look how emotionally mature I am to take on this music of something so serious? Is that part of sort of the rationale behind it? And does it work? No one would tell you that that is part of the rationale. And I cannot speak to anyone's motivation. I will say that it is very clear that for many people, this does pay off. And I think for some observers, it's the mere personal gain that kind of renders doing this suspect in terms of, so you could be well-intended, but it's ultimately self-serving because you personally benefited in terms of artistic merit marks. And certainly a few Schindler's List routines have gone badly wrong. Many of them have been extremely competitively successful. Louise, thank you so much. Can you be the unorthodox figure skating correspondent? I would be delighted to if my editors will let me. Okay, great. It's an unpaid position, so they don't have to worry. Thank you very much for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. of you listeners have been asking, when are we going to talk to Sarah Hurwitz about her new book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there? The answer is right now. Here's a conversation I recorded with Sarah a few months back. I am here with Sarah Hurwitz. She is the author of Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, after finally choosing to look there. She was Michelle Obama's head speechwriter in the White House, a senior speechwriter for President Obama, and Hillary Clinton's chief speechwriter on her 2008 campaign. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So this book is 
wonderful. It's about your journey into Judaism after sort of giving up on it as a teenager. Could you set the scene for us? Where are you in life at the beginning of this book? I am in a place where I think, you know, many Jews I know are, which is I went to Hebrew school. I went twice a year to the high holiday services that I found to be dull and largely incomprehensible. I attended a Seder, which I also found to be kind of dull, and a Hanukkah party. And that was the Judaism. And I kind of thought to myself, well, there's really no no meaning to be found here for me. And once I had my bat mitzvah, I was kind of out. And then years later, at the age of 36, I randomly wound up taking an intro to Judaism class. I'd like just broken up with this guy. I took it just to fill time because I was sad and lonely, but I was blown away by what I found. So when I started this journey, I was a Jew who knew very little about Judaism kind of like vaguely proud to be Jewish, but couldn't have actually told you what that meant. I just would have said something like, oh, Judaism is about social justice. And as are actually, it turns out all religions, surprise, um, you know, it's about questioning debate, right? I had this very thin kind of Jewish identity. And then I took this class and everything changed. So there's a great bit in the introduction that I would love for you to read for us, if you don't mind. I'd be happy to. So this part is about what I found in this class. I'd always thought of myself as a good person. But the Jewish ethics we studied set a much higher bar for honesty, generosity, and basic human decency than I'd ever thought to set for myself. Once I actually understood the purposes of the holidays and life cycle rituals, they struck me as beautiful and profound, honoring the lessons of the past, sanctifying moments in the present, and conveying deep moral wisdom. Seen through adult eyes, the whole sensibility of Judaism spoke to me, its intellectual rigor, its creativity and humanity, its emphasis on questioning and debate. This wasn't the stale, rote Judaism of my childhood. It was something relevant, endlessly fascinating, and alive. In the final months of the Obama administration, I was at an office happy hour and approached two of my colleagues who were deep in conversation. What are you guys talking about? I asked. One of them replied, actually, we're talking about the afterlife. I couldn't believe it. This was my kind of conversation. That's amazing, I exclaimed. Can I join you guys? Can we talk about God too? They stared back at me, baffled. And then one of them started laughing. No, Sarah, the afterlife. Like what we're going to do after we leave the White House. That is an amazing scene. It is so <laughs> True funny. story. Were you just really out of place as someone in your sort of like cynical DC politics world who wanted to really earnestly explore not just Judaism, but religion? I originally assumed that would be the case. But once I started learning, my White House colleagues were so excited for me a lot of them had religious traditions that they cared a lot about. I actually ran into the White House chief of staff and he asked me, so what are you doing over the break? And I was planning to go to a silent Jewish meditation retreat. And I thought like, I cannot tell the chief of staff that I'm going to a silent Jewish meditation retreat. But I, I didn't want to lie. So I told him and he said, Sarah, I am so proud of you. That is an amazing thing to do. I'm so glad you're doing that. Like, wow, good for you. So, you know, people were pretty supportive. You make an interesting point early on in the book. It's sort of an argument against this a la carte religious life, which is, you know, I like this bit, bit of Judaism, but like I also sort of want to pull in this thing from another religion. I don't like this part of Judaism, so I want to sort of pick and choose. How did you learn to dive into all aspects of Judaism, particularly the ones that are a little more difficult? I'm not necessarily saying that everyone has to embrace every single thing about Judaism, right? That's certainly not it. I think what I was pushing back on is this idea that religion is about self-affirmation, right? It's about all the things that are so me. So it's like, oh, this thing in Buddhism is so me, and this thing in Islam is so me, and this part of Judaism is so me, and I'm just going to pick all the things that are so me and reinforce all of my current ideas and understandings, and that's going to be my religion. 
the point, I think, of religion is not just self-affirmation, right? It's also to challenge us. It's also to push us to be better people. It's also to make us aspire to meet a higher ethical and moral standard. What I argue for is to pick one of these traditions and to engage deeply with it, to really wrestle with every aspect of it. If there's something in Judaism that you don't like, explore it, right? I found so often that things in Judaism that I didn't like, that I had disdain for or responded to really poorly, once I actually started learning and discovering and reading all these amazing, smart rabbis and scholars and other people who had really amazing interpretations, I began to find something deeper. Think about the High Holy Day liturgy, right? Unatanatokif, a prayer that we say at the High Holy Days, which is, you know, God determines who will live and who will die and who by water and who by fire. I mean, I used to listen to that prayer and think, are you kidding me? Is there anyone here who actually literally believes this? Because if that's the case, wow, that is one heck of a God you're you're worshiping, and I'm, I'm not going to join you in that. But, you know, once I learned that that prayer quotes frequently from the book of Job, I have a very different understanding of that prayer. Book of Job, just to review, God punishes a totally righteous man named Job. Job confronts God, says, what's the deal? And God essentially says, you don't know what it's like to be me, so back off. I'm summarizing just a touch, but, you know, that's not a straight-up reward and punishment theology. That's actually a really complicated, troubling notion of, of the divine and how the world works. Now when I look at this prayer, I think, oh, no, this is edgy. This prayer is actually really rich and deep and complex, and I used to look at it with disdain because I just didn't know anything about it. Judaism involves interpretation. That is our tradition, right? We don't just accept things on face value and continue to practice the Judaism that people practiced in the year 600 or 1600. We continue to reinterpret and reimagine Judaism. So you just did something there that you do a lot in the book, which is break down pretty complex ideas in like a very modern, contemporary, accessible, attainable way. What it made me realize is that you're sort of like doing what you do as a speechwriter, which is basically absorb complex themes that are not necessarily your own, and then not regurgitate, but 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 basically create something that is really digestible and understandable. And are you basically speech writing for Judaism? It's funny, like I am using my speech writing skill here, right? That is absolutely my goal because you're right. That's exactly what speech writers do. We dive in, we learn a lot very quickly about a subject and we try to find its beating heart. And that's what I did with Judaism because I have to tell you, learning about Judaism as an adult probably took me about 500 hours just to figure out the most basic contours. It took me so much time, and I just thought, you know what? People do not have this time. And I just thought, okay, if I can maybe use the speech writing skill to kind of take that 500 hours of work and digest it into a book, and then also to include the next, you know, two or 3,000 hours of reading and learning I did where I got to some of the deeper insights and include some of that as well, maybe I can help. Who do you see this book as being for? Who are you imagining is your reader? So funny. I originally thought my reader was going to be Jews like me who were kind of disengaged, who didn't have a lot of background. But what I'm finding is that those Jews indeed will tell me, oh, you wrote this book for me. This is the book I've been looking for. And then my super really deeply observant, very traditional Jews will come to me and say, this book is for me. This is the book for me, right? Like you, you've made me realize why I love Judaism so much. You've made me fall in love with Judaism again. And then I have friends who are Christian or who are just don't affiliate with any religious tradition who've said, oh, this, this book is for me. You're actually sharing with me, a, a non-Jew, the wisdom that Judaism has. So my book, I would say, is actually for everyone. You have a really interesting choice of words. You don't like the chosen people. You opt instead for choosing people. How do you explain that distinction? You know, the idea about the choosing people, which is an idea that many people have articulated, to me what that means is, you know, in America today, we're all in some ways Jews by choice, right? We don't live in 
these tiny insular communities where, you know, the norms and practices of daily life are kind of reinforced by the people around us, right? We all make a decision about whether or not to engage in Judaism. And so I believe that we have to show people that Judaism is worth choosing. You know, for so long, I think we've in America almost defined Judaism as kind of just an ethnicity or peoplehood or an identity. Well, it's clearly not an ethnicity, right? There are Jews of every ethnicity, every race. So that doesn't make sense. And it is very much a peoplehood, right? It is an identity, that's for sure. But it's not just that, right? There, I think, needs also to be some substance to it because ethnic identities, they don't last very long in America in such an assimilationist culture. So I don't think that's sufficient anymore. I think we really need to show people what Judaism has to offer that will transform their lives. So during the final year of the Obama administration, you sort of start taking an active interest in Shabbat and you sort of adopt a more rigorous practice. Will you tell us a little bit about how you found time for that in your life and what you learned from that experience and whether that is still part of your life today? So I did briefly experiment with a more rigorous kind of traditional Shabbat practice in the White House. I just decided it was something I wanted to try. And my colleagues were wonderful and they were so understanding. They said, of course, we're not going to bother you. I left my phone on, meaning that people could call me, but I didn't check email so that there was always that option to reach me if something urgent came up. It never did. And what I did is I really, I went offline that day. I tried not to take, you know, use cars or trains or any way to travel. I tried to generally travel on foot. I sometimes broke that rule when I needed to reach people's homes that were far away. And I, you know, to actually create the space in my life, it was quite meaningful. It was so different from the hustle and bustle of the White House. It was just this, you know, what Heschel calls a real sanctuary in time. I had ceased producing and consuming and listening to all of the noise of the secular world that constantly creeps into our life and says, you're not enough. You need to do more, work more, spend more, consume more, be better, self-improve. I kind of tuned that all out for a day and I just existed. And it was a really profound practice. It's not one that I continue today for a number of reasons, but on Friday nights, I try to do something that's in the Shabbat spirit. You know, I have a regular Shabbat dinner with a group of friends. I try to just spend time with people I love on Shabbat, right? It varies from week to week. So let's break it down practically when you were doing this, because I know a lot of people probably, I mean, I love the idea of taking that day off. Then I also have these worries of, do I set an auto reply? Do I have to tell people in advance that they can't reach me? And is that just buying into all these ideas that we should be accessible at all points? So how did you practically do it? And then what advice do you have for people who might want to start you know, dipping their toes into this kind of practice? Practically, the way I did it is I just, I informed all of my colleagues. I don't know if I put an out of office message. I don't think I did. You know, I had, I had a wonderful speech writing colleague, junior colleague who, you know, was happy to cover things that came up then. So, you know, we kind of arranged it and people were really supportive of it. So I think it helps a lot if you have supportive colleagues. But I think an out-of-office message is great, right? That's a way so that you don't feel anxious about, oh, no, are people expecting an email back? But, you know, I saw plenty of people do this. Think about Jack Lew, who was, you know, White House chief of staff, treasury secretary. He managed to do this. And his staff knew this is what he did. And they worked to accommodate him. And I'm sure that there was something urgent. You know, I'm sure they had a way of dealing with it that they came up with. And it worked. You kind of just have to be clear, like, this is what I need, and hopefully people can accommodate you, but that's not always the case, right? Some people really struggle with this, and I don't have a great solution. All my worries are, will I be accountable to people? I mean, my worries have nothing to do with anything Jewish specifically about taking up a Shabbat practice. It's more like, will my, will some, what if something comes up and someone needs me? That's, that's, I think that signifies the world that we are in today. I think that's so right. And I think also, you know, I think for folks who are really observant, it's just not a a question. Right. It's not a question. Like for them, it's like, yep, I understand those things might come up, but like this is non-negotiable. I see the value of that. 
right? That's a very powerful mindset when you're just saying this is non-negotiable, so I'm going to find a way to make it work. Whereas I think for you and I, it is negotiable. I think there's a lot to be said for the way that really observant folks approach this. I think there's a lot of peace of mind in a way that comes with that certainty and that just sense of like, nope, this is this is what's going to happen and we're going to work around it. So I think it's challenging for folks who don't have that. I also think it's hard if people don't know you as someone who's observant to suddenly say, you know, I actually do want to explore this a little bit. And you're not saying you're going to be praying in Hebrew. You're not saying any of that. You're just sort of saying you want to take these steps towards a more full practice of Judaism. And I feel like people are worried that their colleagues, their friends are going to say, you, like, who are you to do this? Are you even going to go to synagogue then? Are you going to, what if you take a car? I mean, how do we deal with these insecurities we feel and the worries we have about the other people around us? Sometimes we define observance in a very narrow way, right? Either it's like an orthodox traditional observance or it's nothing. I would just really push back on that. Something doesn't have to be an orthodox observance to be a really meaningful and important observance. There are so many different ways to observe Jewish holidays and to practice Jewish rituals. So I think the kind of all or nothing approach just isn't helpful. I think we almost have to kind of own that for ourselves. Those voices are internal, right? Where you're saying, well, I'm not really observing because I'm not going to synagogue and I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Like, yes, you are. You are observing. If you're really shutting out the secular world, if you're really taking time to be still and thoughtful and spend time with others and stop producing and consuming and be grateful for what you have and and to really feel like you are enough and you have enough, that's a pretty meaningful observance. And I think to just say to yourself, no, no, I am observing. And this is meaningful and it is valuable and it doesn't have to follow every single traditional rule ever, right? Like I think that we can kind of own that for ourselves. So I learned something new from your book, the concept of Ganivat Da'at. Am yes, I saying that right? you are. Can you, I host a Jewish podcast. I did not know this. <laughs> Tell us what this concept is. So I've heard it translated as like stealing the mind. And it's a perfect example to me that illustrates just the nuance and, and subtlety of Jewish ethics and how it's a much higher bar than I would think to hold myself to. So it's basically like when you offer something to someone and you make it them think it's something of value to you, but it isn't actually. So an example might be, I'm having a housewarming party. And let's just say you're my colleague and I really don't like you and I really don't want to invite you. And I decide, you know what? That's it. I'm not inviting her. I don't care if she gets mad, whatever. So, you know, you decide not to invite her. And then the next day I come in and you say, I'm going to be on vacation for the next two weeks. And I realize she's going to be on vacation during my housewarming party. So I say, oh, how wonderful. Stephanie, I'd love to invite you to my housewarming party. And now you feel really good, right? You've just gotten this invitation. I feel great because now I look very generous and and hospitable to you. Win-win, right? Jewish law says no, not so much. I've basically kind kind of deceived you, right? I wouldn't have invited you if I knew you couldn't come. The false invitation, I've done that. And I felt really busted. And I thought there was nothing wrong with it previously. But actually studying Jewish law, I realized like, wow, I was kind of deceiving that person. That's not okay. So there are ways you're saying that ancient Jewish law is actually quite relevant in our everyday lives. Quite relevant in our everyday lives. I mean, just thinking about gossip, right? Like, you know, if you and I are colleagues and we get in a big fight, I'm so mad at you. And I go and I tell five people. She is the worst. She's not smart. She's bad at her job. I like that all these examples are you not liking me. <laughs> exactly. Which I know. I'm assuming it's, it's something awkward. I said. <laughs> I love you. These are just, you're just right here. You know, it's so perfect. You know, I tell them, everyone, how terrible you are. And then the next day we come back and we make up. It was a mis- you know, it was all a misunderstanding. Like, but oops, I just told those five people how terrible you are. And what if they told, they each told one other person and those people told someone? I've now created this sort of chain reaction of bad feeling about you and I don't know, what if a month from now you apply for a new job and one of the people who heard that nasty stuff I said about you gets your resume at their company and they're like, ah, 
I've heard some bad stuff about this woman. You know what? Let's just hold on that, right? I have done that. And learning about it, I just thought, wow, I really created harm. Do I still gossip way too much? Yes. I'm no one's model of perfect behavior here, but I occasionally pause, right? I occasionally decide, you know what? I'm not going to send this email. I occasionally stop. And I think that's the difference for me in studying Jewish ethics. That was the part of the book I actually had the hardest time with because I I love to tell, you know, I love to come home and tell my husband every single thing that happened to me that day. And like, just if someone was badly behaved that day, that will go in there. And I, there's no sense that I, there are, I want to just. There are so many exceptions to these rules, right? Like, I'm just giving one example. Is there like, is there like a, a spousal privilege for gossip? You like know, it's there funny. I actually, someone was just telling me this idea of like, it's okay to tell your spouse certain things, right? There, there are so much, there's so much subtlety and nuance. You know, the way I'm talking about it is so unsubtle. But Jewish law is so nuanced, right? It goes into so many weeds. There are so many exceptions. So I don't want to overstate this. It's just more, more what I was reacting to was the idea that your words matter right? Your, your daily speech matters. You're so much more likely to kind of bitch about someone who did something to you as opposed to saying, you know, my friend Josh did the nicest thing for me today. Right? And then you leave these negative pieces in people's minds. It's like, it's kind of like when you're dating someone and you only complain about it to your friends and they only know the bad things because yes. you're not going to be like, oh, guess what this person did for me. You're not going to brag about the good stuff. And so all right. of a sudden you get into a fight and they're like, well, we knew. Yeah. We know he's all, the, you know, we told you, you told us all this bad stuff. So maybe it's just that reminder to be a little less negative? Yeah, I think that it's, from it's, to be, it's to be more even-handed. I think it's, and it's just a reminder to just pause before you speak and think like, do I really want to say this? Like, what are the consequences here? You know, what 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 ramifications could this have? And then maybe you still say it, you know, but it, just to have that pause. Because it's worth it. Because <laughs> it's worth it, right? But just to have that moment of awareness, like I'd never had that before. And studying Jewish ethics, now I, I have that moment. Still do the wrong thing way too often, but I'm, I'm trying to get better. So I'm so curious who you are at the end of this book, right? Because it doesn't sound like you necessarily are at shul all the time or synagogue or temple or whatever you want to call it. You're not necessarily observing Shabbat, but you seem to know a heck of a lot more about Judaism. So I'm curious how you, not that we're supposed to be characterizing ourselves, but how do you, how do you see your Judaism today? So I don't identify with any particular denomination, right? And I'm in no way traditionally observant. You know, I do think a lot more about my daily behavior, about how I treat other people. Like when a friend is sick, I'm much more conscious of like, okay, I have an obligation to show up for that person. When someone loses someone they love five years ago, I might have thought, oh, that's too bad. I'll send a note. Now I think, okay, I got to get on a plane. You know, like that, that's what Judaism calls me to do. And I think finally, I think spiritually, I'm a very different person. Growing up, reading the Jewish prayer book, the Siddur, I really got the impression that God was a man in the sky who controls everything and rewards and punishes us as we deserve. And didn't buy it then, don't buy it now. Right. So I thought, okay, well, it's either that or atheism. I guess I'm an atheist. Maybe I'm agnostic, spiritual, but not religious. Those are not the only Jewish divine options. Just spoiler alert here, right? I actually was able to be exposed to so many different conceptions of the divine. The notion that the divine God is everything. We're all connected. The idea that God is the process by which we become our highest, truest selves, right? So many different divine options. And I began to see, oh, wait, this is much bigger and more complex and, and just ineffable and just it's so big, right? It's so much bigger than this small human created God concept I'd thought Judaism was selling to me. It's not what they were actually offering me. They were offering me something so much bigger. And going on silent Jewish meditation retreats, I began to kind of have a felt sense of that as well. And so I think that experience and that study of Jewish theology and spirituality has really opened me up to feelings of just wonder and awe and gratitude and really deep presence in my life. 
that I didn't have before then. So will you leave us with one gem of wisdom, one bit of inspiration for someone who has read your book or is about to read your book? So I really think the core animating idea of Judaism is found in the Torah, and it's the idea that we're all created in the image of God. We're all created in the divine image. And I don't think you have to have any type of belief in any type of God or higher power to get the power of that idea. You know, I think Rabbi Yitz Greenberg speaks about it so beautifully when he says that essentially what that means is that we are all infinitely worthy, all totally equal, and each fundamentally unique. And he calls those the three inalienable dignities. And he's drawing those ideas from, from Mishnah, from ancient Jewish texts. And I just find that to be such a wonderfully radical idea, not just back then, but now we still don't think all people are equal, really, right? Think of how often we've passed someone on the street who asked for our help and we said, oh, no, no, sorry, not today. That person had been Barack Obama, probably would have stopped, just guessing, right? Why is that? Because we think that some people are more equal, more worthy, more unique than others. And what Judaism tells us is no, 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 no. Like it really, it is very countercultural. It says, no, actually, that person who needed your help on the street is just as worthy and equal and unique as Barack Obama. All of us, and I'm really talking about myself here, right? I, I lose track of this insight every day, right? And I and Judaism is constantly reminding me, no, Sarah, you are respecting this person more than another because of their, their power, their fame, their influence. Like, no, it's constantly kind of calling me back. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful for that. Sarah Horwitz, we are grateful for you and your new book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, after finally choosing to look there. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. We 
heard from this listener, Gavriel Kleinwax, who said there's this guy, Jackson Crawford, who has a crazy story to tell us and would be a super interesting Gentile of the Week. Now, we hear these things from listeners all the time, and, you know, sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not. But when we went and found Jackson Crawford, who was this crazy cowboy Gentile Norse mythology YouTube star, let's just say that we knew we had found a GOTW, a Gentile of the Week, for the ages. So thanks again to Gavriel Kleinwax for putting us in touch with him. Thanks to Jackson Crawford for sitting down with us. And you guys can thank us for this great interview you're about to hear. My name is Jackson Crawford. I am a specialist in the Old Norse language and in Old Norse literature and mythology. I teach at the University of Colorado Boulder, previously at UCLA and UC Berkeley. I'm also a translator of Norse mythology, and I have a YouTube channel, which is actually my main source of income these days. So let's back way, way, way up. Growing up as a boy outside of Denver, how did you get interested in Norse? Yeah, that's something that people ask because I'm not Scandinavian, right? I mean, you go to Scandinavian programs around the country, and most of the students at the faculty are Scandinavian or Scandinavian descent, right? Their last name is something son. I'm a guy who's pretty obviously not. Um, I grew up in uh, mostly rural Colorado and Wyoming, some in Texas, and just got real interested early on in evolution, right? So I have a family that uh, my dad's side is real secular, and then my mom's side is real fundamentalist Protestant. And so there was always this tension because one side of the family is pretty cool science, one side of the family isn't. So evolution was kind of this forbidden fruit subject. Like depending whose house you did Thanksgiving at, you could talk about evolution or not. Yeah, right. Or about dinosaurs or not. Right. right? But because I love dinosaurs and I was kind of interested in evolution, I took Latin as soon as I could in middle school because the dinosaur names were in Latin. Right. And from Latin, I learned that languages evolved too. So I got real interested in how English had evolved as a language. And eventually that led me to Old Norse, which is actually a very, very close relative of English, but that takes just kind of a different tack. So I call it the forgotten sister. So originally it was actually the language aspect that brought me to it. But then the mythology and the literature is so interesting that that also kind of kept me in it because I studied a lot of ancient languages throughout high school, college, grad school. But Old Norse actually has cool stuff to read not just Bible translations, right? Go back a second and tell us about, so your parents, uh, they had a mixed marriage, obviously. Fundamentalist, yeah, kind of mixed marriage. Your yeah. mom was from the fun, fundamentalist Christian yeah. side, right? Was she herself uh, as as Christian in, in that way? Yes. She was. Yes. But your dad wasn't. Right. I don't know how it worked. It's still, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Are they still married? Yeah. They just don't, they just, <laughs> your mom just feels he's hopelessly misled. And yes, he, I'm not sure she doesn't think he's going to hell. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just one of those things. So I'm guessing that at some point you decided to just not ask anymore. Yeah. Like you, you oh, I stay out of it. But I bet as an adolescent, you were picking some fights. And I switched sides, right? Like a couple times. I mean, you know, you grow up, you have different pressures from different sides of the family, different people that you kind of admire for one reason or another. I played all sides of that equation. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up making enemies on both. But ultimately, uh, sided more, I guess, on my dad's side. Did your mom take you to church? Yeah. What, what kind? Primitive Baptist. That is actually the self-designation. I know Primitive Baptists. Yeah. Were they foot-washing Baptists? I have had my feet washed. Feels good, I bet. It's okay. It can be awkward depending on who was washing them. Who washed them? Uh, my boss at one point. How'd that work? In my, my high school college job at Target. It was creepy. It so happened that your Target manager was also a member of your church? Yeah, it was... It's, it was a whole weird thing. I actually ended up basically getting fired for dating a Mormon. It's, there's a lot of weird stories here. <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah. <laughs> Such as? Well, he thought, you know, he, he had this very literalist, weird sort of Christianity, as a lot of people that I knew growing up did. And he believed that God fed him, literally. So he said that every Friday his truck would fill with groceries without him having to buy them. We never witnessed this, but he swore he never paid a cent for groceries. 
I mean, I guess he was also the manager of a grocery store. <laughs> so there's a simpler explanation for how he might not have paid a cent for groceries. But yeah. How did he know you were dating a Mormon? Uh, she also worked at Target. And it, he made it his business to fire you? Yeah. You know, I was 17 or whatever. I didn't know. Did he fire her? No. Why'd she get to stay? I guess I was the responsible party in his eyes. Interesting. It's, it's, it's weird revisiting this memory right now. <laughs> <laughs> How were you going to church weekly? No, by that point, I was actually pretty much out. I had pretty much left by that point. Was that hard for your mom? Yes, it still is. But uh, I think she's more or less at peace with it by now. My So I turned out so bad that they actually ended up putting my brother in a private residential super fundamentalist high school in East Texas. Did it take? It did not. It turned him into the most rabid atheist <laughs> on this planet. <laughs> Which is pretty much what you expect from that. Like he went to one of these schools where you could actually go to suspension for not having the King James Version of the Bible on you when you were checked. Like they would have people check you just randomly to see if the KGV was on you. And if you had like an NRSV, you were fucked. Yeah, yeah. That was suspension. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They did have a prom. There was no dancing, of course. But the uh, they all got dressed up and they went and saw a comedy show by the principal. And the comedy show is about 15 minutes. And then it segues with, but seriously, folks, Jesus' love is no joke. <laughs> it turns into this like two-hour sermon. My brother is the bitterest atheist on this planet. Are there just two of you? No, so I also have a sister. So how's her faith life? Generic Protestant. Did your brother also end up a, an intellectual? He is a river guide on the Grand Canyon. So which one of us won? Yeah, I'm going to say he did. It's interesting to me how in certain families everyone more or less ends up, as we usually say, off the derech, off the path. Yeah, right. And then you see families where no one ever questions it. The kids just turn into carbon copies. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I don't know what causes that. Since I had such a tension, there wasn't one story. Like, in a sense, I did end up staying on the path, but it's on my dad's side's path, right? I'm super close with most of that side of the family. It's my mom's side of the family that looks at me as, you know, the world's greatest fuck up and the devil. And I'm not even the rabid atheist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I always wonder, of course, you do have your dad there, so that probably explains it in your case. But sometimes it seems to be that you know, you'll see that the parents had just a little bit of irony or sarcasm. Oh, yeah. And that just infected the kids. And, and you know, like, it seems to me to keep kids really on the straight and narrow without ever questioning it, you have to have a super earnest household. Because yep. the second you sort of tip your hand that questioning can be a little bit fun, they're going to take it to religion also. Oh, yeah. My dad is super sarcastic, and my brother and I both inherited some of that. He actually deliberately got me interested in dinosaurs as an underhanded way of getting me to question the fundamentalist stuff on my mom's side. But this to is fuck just, with your mom, basically. Yeah, this <laughs> this marriage is like a 40-year war, and I don't understand why either party is still fighting. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, this, this could be hot for them, right? This could be, this is... Maybe. Right? Maybe. I hope it is. <laughs> Where'd you go to college? By high school, we were living in Texas. My dad's in the oil business, so we moved around quite a bit. Okay. Went to high school in Texas, went to Texas Tech for undergrad. Okay. Got my master's at University of Georgia, and my PhD in Scandinavian Studies at Wisconsin. And, and was there good classics at Texas Tech? You could keep up with the Latin? Yeah, and- that's actually what I did. I did uh, ma- a major in Latin and Greek and a minor in linguistics. And then my master's is in historical linguistics at the University of Georgia. So I kind of went specific, then wide, then specific again. I don't know anything about Texas Tech. Like, sure. was there a scene there? Did you have like 10 really nerdy classics friends? Or like, where did you find your people? So actually... Texas Tech, the tech is meaningless. The tech doesn't even stand for There's anything. There's no tech. Yeah, it's right. just, it is Texas Tech, and that is the formal name. It wow. is not like Texas Institute of Technology. It has more majors than any other university in Texas, including liberal arts majors. Huh. So it's actually a pretty, it's it's not what, what it sounds like it is. It's actually a pretty normal. It's not an ag school. No, no, no. It's a pretty normal four-year school. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of, of like classics and language nerds there, actually. It wasn't that that unusual. 
as much as people who don't know Texas Tech think like, oh, wow, you must have been the classics major. It was actually. Well, I think that even, I went to Yale and like, honestly, I could sure. name one classics. I mean, there were probably six, but yeah, there, yeah, were not, yeah. there were not a lot. You know, anywhere you go, if you're doing linguistics, you're pretty, like, that's a pretty cerebral yeah, major. I feel like it's actually getting more and more popular, especially since The Lord of the Rings came out. Oh, right. I think those movies really changed the cultural narrative around some of these studies like suddenly it became pretty cool to get immerse yourself in a weird language and, and tolkien was a philologist right yep. wasn't yep. that his yeah he taught uh anglo-saxon philology as it was called then i would call it old english linguistics changing both words in uh like the 1920s 30s 40s 50s in oxford yeah so linguistics if i'm not mistaken you'll let me give you my understanding of it. you'll tell me if i'm wrong that it basically used to be let's say 100 years ago it was historical philology, right? It was like yeah, tracing, the evolu- tracing the evolution of words from one language to another. Yeah, and that's most of what I still do. And that's mostly what you still do, but that's pretty old-fashioned, yeah. right? And then yeah. there's at least a couple turns. One of the turns in the 1950s and 60s was into sort of Chomskyite, like yeah. basically neurolinguistics, right? Looking at brains, how brains generate language, right? Yeah. And then another turn was into sociolinguistics, which is the study of contemporary people and how they talk and accents, dialects, all that stuff, right? Yeah. But I'm probably missing five other areas. I mean, are there, what else could one do with linguistics? Now? Those are two Two really big ones. I mean, right now, probably most linguistics degrees are English as second language degrees. People are learning how to teach language. Right. Right. I th- that sounds seriously less rigorous than what you do. Um, it's different. <laughs> every part of it informs every other part of it. Okay. They're not linguists, right? They're studying sort of pedagogy. They're studying theories. Well, of- but there's there's linguistics that underlies it. I mean, also speech pathology degrees have a lot of linguistics that okay. underlie what they do. So I, okay. I, you could call it, and some people do call it applied linguistics. Okay. Yeah. And that, I, I don't mean to disrespect it. It just no, strikes me either. as a yeah, different yeah. field, but maybe I'm the similarities are more than I would know. It's kind of a pure versus applied science thing. I, I guess would be the equivalent. So when people ask you what you do, what do you you say historical philology or like how do you describe it? Let's say you're talking oh, to someone, not me, who sort of has pretensions to knowing stuff. Like you're talking to someone who's one of your dad's oil business buddies and who knows nothing about anything except his who doesn't know academic linguistics at all. What do you say you do? These days, the first thing I used to say is I, I teach Norse mythology. Norse mythology. That's, people know what that is. They, they relate to it. I mean, since that is so much of what I teach and, and what I translate and you know, what the language I study is most known for, like that's, that's the safest answer. And it gives me something to talk about that people know what I'm talking about, right? I say like, uh, I'm a, you know, like if I, if I talk about my PhD research and the historical semantics of Old Norse, no one's interested in that. So, and the department you're in is a linguistics department then, or it's, uh, so at Colorado, we have a department of Germanic and Slavic languages. Uh, got it. There's a Germanic, really German program, a Slavic, really Russian program. And there is a Nordic, really like Norse mythology and Vikings program. So I am the director of the program in Nordic classes. You're basically Viking studies is what you're saying. It's pretty much kind of Viking studies. Yeah. Cause that's what, <laughs> I mean, these, these are some of the biggest classes on campus. My, are they really? Yeah. My, my contract actually requires me to teach a class of 160 or more every semester and it's easy to fill. And what class is that? Any Norse mythology sagas or Vikings will all fill that much. And who takes, is that like everybody because it's, it's, I'm a, not doubting that they're awesome classes. I'm just wondering like, Oh, I'm, I don't know that they're awesome. Is, but, is it like, does the whole football team say we're all going to go take? Yes. Yeah, sometimes. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's cause it's a literature credit or a history credit. Okay. So so I think it just sounds better than Shakespeare or something, right? So it, these classes end up being real full, and they have for decades. I mean, long before I was there. Really? Norse mythology? Yeah. And the same when I was teaching at UCLA in Brooklyn. I had no idea. Yeah. These are huge classes. I teach auditoriums, which, I mean, it's not fun, right? The small classes are, are 
fun, but you know, the, the huge classes, it's a weird atmosphere. Tell us about the YouTube work you do. Yeah. So I was teaching at Berkeley and I was making 1600 a month and my rent was 1200 a month. <laughs> and so I was- Yeah. The economics of being a, a like a postdoc or a grad student at Berkeley. No, no. This is full-time This assistant professor. <laughs> well, not tenure track, right? Yeah. Who not is strong anymore, but adjunct economics, professor, yeah, yeah. In the Bay Area. So um, I thought, you know, I've got to get another job. So I tried a bunch of things. I was a historical reenactor for a brief, sad period. And then- Where do you historically reenact in the Bay Area? The San Francisco Maritime landmark. <laughs> you play like an old age of sail sailor. It was, it was not a good fit. I had a backstory though. I mean, at least I had this explanation that I was like this poor ranch boy from Wyoming or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. It was stupid. It didn't work well. But- you know, I thought to myself, Vikings are so popular. Norse mythology is so popular. There's not good information about there. Like you go and Google this stuff yeah, and you get Wikipedia articles or you get like racists on YouTube spouting their crap. Right. So I thought there's room here to make money off of actually giving the public good information about this. And so I read up about this a little bit and I saw some book that I read, I can't even remember where, said that video was the medium that people trusted most. So I thought, well, I'll start a YouTube channel. And at first, I just thought I would use it to promote my books because I'd already started translating uh, these primary sources in Norse Smith. But then I kind of branched out and just started answering all the questions people asked, and I've never run out since, and that was 2016. So uh, by now, I post uh, two videos a week just answering the kinds of questions people tend to ask. And you edit them yourself? Yep. I do the entire thing, the, the videoing, the editing, the uploading. It's all done on my phone. And the money comes from ads then get embedded by... Patreon. Oh, Patreon. Patreon. It's donations. That's actually my main gross income now. It's more than you make as a professor. Yes. You make more money on Patreon from people who watch your videos yep. and donate. Yep. Just just people making small donations because they like what I'm doing. I mean, it's, it's, I mean it, it really... like. Now and then I think about that and I think, wow, that's actually kind of amazing. And then I, I do recently have an advertiser, but that's not as big of a... Now, the downside, and this gets to how we discovered you, is we've heard mm. that you have a following of people of, of sort of unsavory, that you have some unsavory fans. Well, I don't know that I, I don't know they're my fans. Unsavory people that find my stuff. So, okay, so tell me about that. Okay, so Nazis love Norse mythology, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they have since... Since Nazis. Since Nazis. <laughs> and so Nazis- You know what else they love is is journalism by Jews. Really? Oh, yeah, because we're the ones who dig up all the dirt on the Jewish community. Oh so they, they love, like, nobody retweets our stories more than Nazis. Oh, my God. Because that's- we, I don't- <laughs> I, I, Okay. I mean, like, I, I guess I'm not shocked, but- It's the oh price of God. doing business, man. Oh, my God. I mean- my conspiracy theory about them is it's the same 20 people. Oh, there aren't a lot of them, no. But Boy, are they active on the internet. Yeah, well, I guess they don't have a whole lot else to do. Nope. I mean, while they're waiting for their hot pockets to cook. But so basically, as soon as I start talking about this, of course, some Nazis are going to find it or neo-Nazis, whatever you want to call these people. Um, originally, I didn't have comments on my videos, but that was also before I even had a thousand followers. Eventually, somewhere I read that actually just having comments, even if you don't read them, gets people to engage more. So I added comments and I was pretty shocked originally to see you know, some of the like insanely way explicit white supremacist stuff that I was seeing. So I just started deleting it. But eventually, you know, my channel now has a decent reach. I mean, I have like 95,000 subscribers-ish right now. That's decent. It's pretty decent. Yeah. I mean, it's not PewDiePie or whatever, but like, I guess, I guess it's okay for a YouTube channel. But by now, I mean, as people have found out about my stuff, found out about my translations, my translations are kind of gaining an acceptance as time goes by. You know, my first one came out in 2015. So there's been enough time for the community of people interested in Norse mythology to kind of get to know it and to refer to it. The white supremacists come to know about me too. And I, I can't get inside their heads, right? 
But I think they have a default assumption that anyone who's interested in this stuff, especially if they don't immediately like spelled out on their forehead, have something that says, I am a like liberal progressive or something. They assume, oh, this person must be one of us. Right. So I think, or, or they want them to be. So early on, I would occasionally see like just weird comments made, like with the assumption that I must agree with this shit. Right. But then as I started to explicitly now and then mention something, uh, you know, like I wouldn't even know, always know what it was, but there's all kinds of Nazi talking points about the stuff, which is mostly based on horseshit. And then like, I always like, obviously I don't believe in whatever some 1930s Nazi mystic said. So I'll say something that disagrees with it. And so they start calling me a cuck or whatever. We so explain cuck to people who have the good, good oh. fortune of not knowing that term. Well, I, I don't want to end their good fortune, but it is short for cuck. Cold. So it's just the internet insult du jour. I think, uh, not to try to get into their heads too much, but I think part of it is that I am a cuck to the white race or something. I don't understand. You're, you're sleeping with the enemy, basically. Yeah, because yeah. I'm not a racist. Right. 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 So I didn't even ever have to explicitly say that for them to start hating me. But then um, this summer, there had been enough annoying people just, I mean, after a certain point, I guess my stuff had reached enough of an audience that these people start trying to sort of claim you here and there, right? So I just made a video, like a three-minute video, just explicitly saying, I want nothing to do with, and I have nothing to do with any ideologies racist or ethno-nationalist or white supremacist. Like, I just try to kind of name all these things, you know, nature. And that definitely shook some of them off, but it also got them more angry at me. Anyway... <laughs> So since I don't tow their weird Nazi mystic lines, and, and, and one thing people forget about Nazis, they're super like mystic, like they're real into like weird esoteric magic stuff. And, and a lot of that is actually how they originally said they hated me because I said, because it's all horseshit. So since I also am reaching more people, this must be because of some dark magic I'm using or something, right? So <laughs> I've been accused of having various dark magical powers, which I'd love to have, um, <laughs> but I don't. Because actually only the Jews have dark magic yes, powers. Yes, but I have also been accused, which in their language, I guess, would be the word to use, of being Jewish. So actually, my publisher has had to deal with this this issue that now and then one of these idiots just goes on to Amazon and you know gives me a one-star review. And <laughs> it didn't like the most recent one <laughs> that they had to complain about ended with, like, go back to Israel. <laughs> go back to Israel. Yeah, go back to and do they have any evidence that you're a Jew other than that you're a cuck? <laughs> uh, no. Like, um, it's just that you aren't a Nazi. Yeah. So I stopped reading the comments like a year and a half ago, right? Maybe two years ago. Yeah. I have an assistant who actually cleans that stuff up now. Do you pay the assistant just for that or this yes. is your secretary at, at, well, at she does, UC Boulder? Oh, she's not associated with CU. Okay. You've hired someone to be your like- I have independently hired, yeah. To clean up your YouTube comments. Yes. My assistant gets a portion of my Patreon. Money. How many hours a week does your assistant work on that, do you think? Uh, about 20. Really? It's that full-time a job? Yeah. Or so half-time a job? That's my comments on YouTube. It's um, kind of monitoring other stuff, like monitoring, you know, anywhere else people are talking about the stuff, just watching for hate speech, like mostly kind of like hate speech policing the stuff. Yeah. And then uh, answering my public email because I can get, well, let's see if you can even guess, how many people do you think a day might ask me to translate some tattoo into runes or something for him. Like, 35. Oh, well, that's pretty conservative. Oh, I see a zero over here. A no, one, Josh zero, is saying 10. 100 that he went 100. Oh, 100. Zero. 1,000? 1,000. Yeah, it can it can get to 1,000. And they find your UC Boulder email, and that's... No, not anymore. That's not listed anywhere oh. anymore. No, I have a website that has a contact form, and that goes uh -huh. to, to my assistant. And I assume your assistant says, I'm sorry, but the professor does not... Yeah, pretty much. Except for I, a reasonable fee, translate your late ex-boyfriend's tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. I don't actually even know what sales says, but 
I don't have to see it anymore. So back up a second and like take us into the mind as best you can of a sad basement dwelling neo-Nazi who's one of whose passions is Norse mythology. What is it that he believes? Like what, what is his mythological mindscape and how does it involve the work you do? What is he trying to use your work for? All of this is with the caveat that I really don't personally know any of these people. And in the last year and a half to two years, most of my encounters with them are sort okay. of filtered secondhand through my assistant. Basically, the way they encounter my work is there are certain... Well, let me back up a moment. Our sources for Norse mythology are less direct than people would actually like. There was no Viking during the Viking Age before the conversion of Christianity who wrote down a cohesive account of their mythology and religion. So Iceland converts about 1,000. Iceland converts to Christianity. Yes. Was there a king who converted them all en masse like Constantine? No, it's actually an interesting story. The Icelanders had a uh, sort of proto-Republican government at that time and met in their national council for the right. year in the summer and actually had- Decided. Yeah, they appointed an arbiter to decide whether they were con all going to convert or not. And he decided yes, after he spent three nights- uh, under his cloak, thinking about it. He said, yes, everybody's got to be baptized, but we're going to have some compromises with the old pagan faith. You can still eat horses. This was a big deal for Christians at the time. Christians didn't eat horses? Not in Northern Europe because it was associated with pagan rituals. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. You can still expose infants, and you can still be pagan in secret, which I but, think is the greatest. Wait, back up. What do you mean you can expose infants? You know, kind of like the classic version we see now is in the 300 movie. You look at a baby when it's born, if there's something obviously wrong, you know, some kind of disability you might see, or maybe you just don't want a baby at the time or can't feed a baby, you can leave it outside to die before you give it a name. Oh, do yeah. they still do that in Iceland? No. All of this was discontinued after a few years. Okay. But when they first converted for a few years, there were these three compromises. I think I think it's kind of funny, especially like, and you can still be pagan in secret. It's like, well, I can do anything in secret. Like, <laughs> it's not how, a bad deal. No, it's actually not bad. It's like, it kept the peace. It's Pascal's wager, basically. So here's the thing. So... Iceland converts about 1,000. In the 1200s, though, there's this big antiquarian uh, surge in Iceland. It's a period of civil war. People are kind of nostalgic for the old days, which for them is, is the Viking Age. You know, they're looking back at a time. It's much like Americans often look back at the Old West. You know, it's a time when men were men. You know, you settled things honorably. And apparently, there actually was a pretty good, faithful transmission of poems about the gods from the pagan period. These are not religious poems. They're stories. This is something people often forget today, right? These are being passed down orally by Christians, so it's not like, here's how to pray to Thor. It's stuff like, here's a funny story about Thor. And somebody, we don't know who, wrote down 30 of these traditional oral poems in a book that we now call the Poetic Edda. And linguists like me, who waste a decade of their lives learning how to do this, can say the language of these poems is much more archaic than the language of the period in which they were written down. The poetry isn't even good poetry in the 1200s. This is the language of the 900s for the most part. So it really is stuff that's been orally passed down very faithfully, it looks like, based on linguistic evidence. That is our best source for Norse mythology, is those poems. So I translated all of those poems, the, the poetic out of the collection in 2015. As that has gained acceptance, my translation, which is, I was going to say not to brag, but I guess it's impossible not to make it sound like bragging. It's, it's the first translation that sounds like normal English because people, when they translate old stuff, want to make it sound old. Or so they, that, they get into lofty, archaic speech. Yes, thou art but like a fair maid, you know, uh -huh. that stuff. So I just translate it into normal English. Plus, I have the benefit of you know, modern scholarship. Not to be crass and all, but like what kind of sales are you like? How many, how many copies of that have you sold? Uh, it's usually the number one bestseller in European literature on Amazon. Tens of thousands somewhere. 
Wow. Yeah. Isn't that odd? That's awesome. Yeah. I'm That's usually good out. for you. I'm, thank you. I'm usually out selling Dante's Inferno at any given point, which is weird. That is weird because I would think so many more people are assigned Dante's Inferno. Yes. And so that just, must mean there's a lot of amateur literature lovers buying your book. Yeah. Or, or just Norse mythology lovers, right? Yeah. I mean, what I'm, what I'm presenting, and this is surprisingly hard to get for a world that's crazy about this stuff right now, is I'm presenting the original unalloyed source material, right? This isn't the big book of Norse mythology. It's not the Wikipedia page. This is stuff written down as early as we can get it, completely unalloyed, except that it's turned into English instead of Old Norse, right? And then um, I've translated some other stuff, and my most recent book is a translation of Havamal, which is the words of Odin. So it's kind of like Proverbs. It's general practical advice. It has a little bit of a Viking kind of cast to it. You know, there's some stuff about how you ought to get up early if you want to kill somebody. But most of the advice is very universal, very practical, the kind of advice that, you know, a grandfather would give a grandson around the campfire. So I've gone back and made a special edition of that poem. That's what my my new book is, The Wanderers of Mall. And it has uh, the English on one page and, and the Old Norse on the facing page, and then my commentary on it to explain all my translation choices and stuff like that. So People who want that unalloyed stuff, right? They find out, oh, if I want the, the real Norse myth, I've got to go back to the poems of the Poetic Edda. If I want the Viking Code of Ethics, people often call Hovamal, the words of Odin, this. I've got to go back to, I've got to go find that book. And then they might find my translation, or they might, some, sometimes what, what happens is they get super attached to some older translation. And then I'm like this evil dude who has screwed something up because I didn't translate something like some British Lord did in 1887. But that's the translations that the, I don't, I don't fully understand this either, but the Nazis get real into like specific, like weird early English translations of some things. And then like any English translation that differs from that is somehow bad. It's, it's actually how kind of like how some fundamentalist Protestants look at the King James version of the Bible. Right. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough yeah, for them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a lot of fundamentalist Protestants say that the KJV is actually a divinely inspired translation. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. So, yeah. He divinely inspired, like, how many King James hired, what, it was like 50 or 100 people to collectively work on it. Yeah. and, and All of them, the spirit hovered over the hall yes. as they were working, right? And based it on the work of Wycliffe, who right. was killed for doing the same thing just right. a little while before that. Um, so they get super attached to some of these translations, uh, many of which are, are inaccurate. Right. I mean, look, if there were actually something racist in these poems written down in the 1200s, I would translate it that way. Right. I, I'd make a comment about it, you know, say this is this is what the text says. Right. Just I'd, I'd be clinical about it. But I would say if it was there, it's not. They're not obsessed with the same stuff Nazis in the 21st century. Also, they didn't have black people or Jews. Well, they or, were they were aware. They, they actually, were aware of uh, racial difference. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, the sagas, um, the mythical sagas and then the uh, sagas of early kings actually often involve uh, sub-Saharan Africans. The Vikings got around. They were aware of, of black people. Actually, they called them blue. Occasionally, in one of the mythical heroic sagas, you'll have a quote-unquote blue man. He's, he's often like some like kind of exotic bodyguard to a king or something like that. They're aware of Jewish people as well. In fact, one of the earliest preserved works of Old Norse literature is a rephrase in Old Norse of the uh, historical books of the Old Testament that's called Gyðinga Saga, Saga of the Jews. Well, I was going to say, right, just thinking of my own ignorance, if they were Christians, they knew about lots of things because the Old yeah. and New Testaments have oh, lots yeah. of things. They might never have met an individual of the Jewish faith, right? right? But they, but they were at least aware of, right? And Paul traveled all over, so yeah, who, who knows, right? You know? <laughs> who knows? I don't know. But so, and the Nazis, I mean, the reason they like this stuff, I assume, is because Hitler had this theory that the Germans were the kind of continuous bloodline from what sort of 
pre-modern or medieval Aryan peoples well, who were also vaguely Indian, who, right, isn't this how the swastika comes in? So I don't want to try to, I don't want to be in the position of explaining Nazism. Right. But That's our job, actually. Right. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> actually, Hitler and, and some of the Nazi intellectuals were kind of obsessed with linguistics. So if you trace English and most languages of Europe and India back, you come to a single ancestor language, Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-European, yeah. right, yeah. Which before the 1930s was usually called Aryan. Aryan, okay. Yeah, right. because the early Indic peoples in Sanskrit called themselves Arya, a word meaning noble. This probably actually is not a self-designation in Proto-Indo-European, but whatever, the Nazis ran with it. So English, German, and Scandinavian are members of the Germanic branch of languages. All of these branches worshipped a pantheon of gods before the conversion of Christianity, which happened at different times, um, earlier in England and Germany, later in Scandinavia. And we can see that the names of these gods are the same, mutatis mutandis, because the languages have changed, but Old Norse Odin is the same word as Old English. Woden is the same word as Old High German, Wotan. But we don't have stories about the gods in England and Germany. The conversion happened and people stopped telling stories about these gods, or if they ever wrote them down, that stuff's long gone. In Scandinavia, especially in Iceland, you have a somewhat more literally insular, in the case of Iceland society, where people are not, uh, they're not as cosmopolitan, they're not as interested in larger European things. They're looking back at their own past and they're not as judgmental about it, right? So you read the Eddas, you read the sagas, and people say, oh, well, you know, at the time our ancestors believed in different gods. That's it. And that's all. You, you don't get this, this, this sermon about it. You don't get this, that they were actually devil's thing about it. So therefore, it's like the best old, old, old source text for yep. what Hitler and the Nazi intellectuals thought of as their lineage. Yep. So they assumed that Norse mythology reflects more broadly Germanic mythology so that it's also the old mythology of the English and the Germans. Now, that's probably not exactly right. You know, the names of the gods may be the same, again, with linguistic change accounted for. But most likely, there's a lot of variation in time and place, which gods are more important, what specific stories are told. It, it would be amazing if we had an old High German equivalent of the Edda, but we don't. If we did, I doubt that it would look much like the Icelandic Edda, right? You might have some very different stories, even if a lot of the names are the same, right? Religion can change quite a bit, especially this kind of uh, unwritten, uncanonized uh, polytheistic religion. Did you ever get the good fortune of getting threats from these people who think that you're a cock and a Jew? Oh, yeah. But I'm a faster draw than any of these idiots. So I've actually had... I've actually had visits on CU campus, not from any Nazis, but from insane people. We, uh, not quite two years ago, actually took all of my contact information off of my CU Boulder page, including where my office is and what my office hours were, just after there were a couple nuts, uh, no Nazis. They were just Old Norse obsessives? No, <laughs> not always. There was, there was a lady who flew from Australia to visit me in my publicly posted office and my publicly posted office hours um, because she wanted naked photos of my grandfather. We get that all the time at Tablet. I bet. Oh, yeah. I mean... No, people want naked photos of your grandfather, Josh. He was a popular man. He was... I mean, I talk about him a lot. And this this comes from your YouTube celebrity, I guess, right? I, I guess, if you can call it celebrity. As a friend of mine put it, celebrity in the smallest possible way. Is the field itself... I mean, all fields get politicized these days. I mean, is there... Um, I know that Classics right now is going through a mm. whole thing about the sort of a lot of classicists of color or allies mm -hmm. are sort of talking about the kind of intrinsic ethnocentrism of 
oh, classics yeah. as a discipline. Are you guys going through that as well? In yes, um, in medieval studies more broadly, there's been a lot of discussion about. I mean, your field is like the whitest white people in the yeah, world. Yeah, that's, like, well, there's there's that's that's part <laughs> what of what you going to do with that. I mean, yeah. So there's there's a, there's been a big emphasis on coming at it from uh, feminist perspectives, from the perspective of other sexualities. I don't know how else to put that. From foreign perspectives, that kind of thing. Actually, a lot of the major scholars uh, in this field are not who you picture when you think of Viking, right? I'm certainly not what you picture when you think of Viking, but I am a white male. But a lot of women, um, increasingly more people of color. So that's there has been some discussion of it, but I would say it's been more probably oriented around medieval studies in general than around Old Norse studies specific. Do you find the stuff you study beautiful? Like, are you personally moved by it aesthetically. I once had a friend who studied studied Mayan art, which is hmm. looks nothing like the European art tradition sure. at all, right? So if you've been grown up thinking that what's beautiful is impressionism or abstract expressionism or whatever, or Warhol, then you look at this stuff and I said, do you, you know, everything we've been trained to think is sort of moving in visual art isn't there. Yeah. Are you moved by it? And his answer was, well, sometimes. He basically said, no, most of the time it's a scholarly project, but because I know about the genius that created it and I know the backstory, once in a while, I'll, it'll like sort of catch me in the throat. And I, But basically, no. What about you? Like, would you ever, when you want a good read, does this stuff qualify or is it much more of an intellectual, you know, itch that you want to scratch? Well, I have different attitudes toward different old nurse literature, but I have a, I do have a particular, I guess, aesthetic relationship with Havamal. And I think part of that is actually that when I first encountered it, it reminded me so much of my grandfather's advice to me. And my grandfather was probably the wisest man I ever knew. This is atheist grandpa or fundamentalist grandpa? Well, they weren't atheists, secular grandfather. Secular grandpa, okay. Yeah. And I once told him, you know, Papa, you have so much wisdom. And he said, yeah, jackass wisdom. You know, like he was so dismissive of his own role as, as like my, my, my mentor. But, uh, when I found this book, it was like I was finding his code, right? I was kind of seeing what he always called the unspoken code of the West. It reminded me so much of him that it really touched me. And actually, as much as it is attributed to a god, I read it and feel a connection with my grandfather. So actually, I, I also have a, uh, in the Wanderers of Mall, there's a, um, a section called the Cowboy of Mall where I take it and I translate it into his voice, right? I turn it into this kind of like Western cowboy tone. And, and to me, that's actually the most genuine translation of Havamal. is not the most literal word for right. word technical translation, but the translation into how he would advise the same thing. If people want to find your YouTube channel or find your new book, what's the, where okay. do we want to direct them? It's pretty easy to find me. Go to YouTube and you type in Jackson Crawford. I'm probably the Jackson Crawford you'll find. Otherwise, you, know, you could search for like, often on the internet, I've been called Viking cowboy, neither of which I would identify myself as, but okay. So you could probably find me that way. Um, I'm Norse by Southwest. That's Norse by SW on Twitter and Instagram. And the book? The most recent book is The Wanderers Havamal. So Havamal is H-A-V-A-M-A-L. Are there any like weird slashes going through the letters at all or anything? Uh, yes, but you don't need that to find it. Okay, good. And and will you think it's funny if we send our listeners to go into your comment section and make sort of fake Nazi comments or that's not funny anymore? Or 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 they can say like, or, or, or they can, you know, add to the conspiracy theory. Right. Right. Like right. if they, if they want to, you know, right. You know, what's not going to be good for this whole thing is you going on a Jewish podcast, just so you know. Hey, hey thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. Thank you. And now back to Sunny Phoenix to finish the show. 
We are in the closing act of the evening, which is when we give our mazel tovs. We will go first to model for you what it looks like, and then you will go next by coming to the microphone, which Josh is holding. So let me go first. I'll give a mazel tov to my dad, who recently got a job as an organizer for JALSA, the Jewish Alliance for Law and Social Action, in Western Massachusetts, and he started that job uh, a few weeks ago. So mazel tov to Tim Oppenheimer. I will say, boy, do Jews love an acronym. Oh right. yeah. JALSA. They should just call it the J. And that doesn't ever good. Is well, like it's like Jalsa, like a salsa. Jalsa. Or Tulsa. But it sounds like Jalsa, like Tulsa. It does. Whatever. I have to say that I am just so overwhelmed with hospitality by the Storches. Um, Ilana and Danny had me over last night. I just have to talk about them again. Ruthie and Ira Joseph and their daughter, Elsa. They're my friend in New York, Juliana and Ruben, who are part of their family. I feel like I was welcomed into Phoenix so nicely. They allowed Josh to come too, and they, they fed him, <laughs> which was great. Um, and I just feel like it was the perfect opening to this trip. Where, where's, where's Susan Swift? Suzanne, where's Suzanne Swift? Woo! Oh, hi. Leo, my you have a mazel tov for Suzanne? Is, is to you, Suzanne. Thank you so much. Uh, those of you who don't know Suzanne, of the great, uh, inimitable Jewish Book Council, uh, by whose graces we're touring the country and get to meet all of you. So thank you so much. She has for sent us everywhere. And, and may we never disappoint you. <laughs> From Tampa to Tulsa. Hi, I'm Fran Richter, and a mazel tov to my grandson, Jacob Rabinovich, who will turn nine this week. And a shout out to Camp Ramon the Poconos. Mazel tov. My name is Stephen Ferentz, and I want to give my daughter, Andrea Ferentz, a mazel tov for starting her last semester of her Master of Social Work, and my mother and father for the birth of their 12th grandchild. Ooh. Six wow. boys, six girls, the first Ferens born in Israel. Wow, mazel tov. Mazel tov. My name's Michael Moore Marco. I want to give a mazel tov to my dear friend Stephen Chapman, who just released his very first album of completely original Jewish music called Awake, Arise, Sing, and say hello to his beautiful wife, Molly, and their son, Elon. Mazel tov. Jordana Bonet. Uh, I want to wish a mazel tov to my father, Bruce Beaver, on his 69th birthday today. And tomorrow to my husband, Stan Mazo, on his 40th birthday. Wow. What a, what a week you're having. Hi, my name's Hannah Prager. I want to say thank you guys. I love your show. Um, I want to give a big mazel tov to my dad. He just opened a high-end residential treatment center for men suffering from substance abuse. And it's been his dream ever since uh, we lost my uncle to substance abuse. So I'm really proud of him. He puts 150% into this, and it's it's really beautiful place, so mazel tov. Mazel tov. Thank you. And mazel tov to you, daughter of the year, I think. Yeah. Hi, I'm Anne Oland. I'm here on date night with Jordy. <laughs> and uh, we Mazel tov to you on the fine choice of spouse, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we wanted to uh, give a big mazel tov to our daughter, Zoe, on her upcoming uh, bat mitzvah in February. Mazel wow. tov, Zoe. Mazel tov. I am Zippy Pearl Turner. From the Unorthodox Podcast. From the Unorthodox Podcast. <laughs> Zippy might have sent us the first email to the unorthodox at tabletmag.com inbox we ever got It was four years ago. It was the summer of 2005. We're like, I hope someone's listening. And Zippy was. <laughs> and Zippy was. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm Zippy Turner, and I'd like to wish a mazel tov to my kids, Sarah, Gabi, and Rafi, who are each following their own path into adulthood right now in their own special ways. Mazel tov. Mazel tov. Mazel tov it's actually that. a mamzel tov. Hi, my name is Daniel Steinkoken, and I'd like to wish a hearty mazel tov to my daughter Salome Steinkoken, who just turned 12 two days ago. And I'll add, given the season, that she was born during Hanukkah, and that's part of the reason why we named her Salome, after Shlomzion Hamalka, Salome Alexandra, the only Jewish queen to have actually wielded power. And there are wonderful rabbinic stories about the fertility with which the land was blessed. Mazel tov. My name is Adam Brooks, and I want to give a mazel tov to my son Cameron, who will be bar mitzvahed in two weeks in Israel. 
Hi, my name is Razi Alov. I think I'm the only Israeli, at least by accent, who spoke so far. So first of all, Mazel Tov to you for debuting your Phoenix live shows. May many would come. And the second one is to my nephews and my wife's nephews in Barin uh, Gilad Kornblit from Israel who just gave birth to their third kid who is the first boy. So Mazel, Mazel Tov to in Barin Mazel tov. I'm Debbie Berkowitz. I want to give a shout out and a mazel tov to this amazing JCC, everyone involved in it, from Nicole Garber to Jay to my sister Kim Subrin, COO, and to everyone else who has put on amazing programming here. And last but not least, my amazing husband, Outgoing chairman of the board, Gary Weiss. We are so proud of you and thankful for all you do. Mazel tov. Aww. I'm Cheryl Hammerman, and thank you very much. I follow your podcast. It's wonderful. I'd like to give a mazel tov to two of our daughters, uh, Jessica and Shana Hammerman, who will be speaking at the AJS, speaking of acronyms, the Association of Jewish Studies Conference in San Diego next weekend. Mazel tov to them. You could go back to San Diego to catch that. Almost, I almost never got out of San Diego. Well, listen, guys, thank you so, 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 so much. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call the listener line, 914-570-4869. You can subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live, like tonight. You could book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross. It's not cross like the Christian cross. It's cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. And of course, you need to wear and carry unorthodox too. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox branded shirts, mugs, and onesies. Remember, no baby is too young to be a billboard for our podcast follow us on instagram at unorthodox podcast and on twitter at unorthodox underscore pod join our facebook group our show is produced by josh cross our associate producers are sarah fredman ader and alana levinson our artwork is by esther Werdiger. our social media mashkiach is elazar abrams our theme music is by golem online at golemrocks.com our mailbox theme is by steve barton rabbinic supervision this week by rabbi mary chernow at temple high in phoenix and and Rabbi Darren Kleinberg, formerly of Phoenix. We usually come to you from Argo Studios, but not tonight. No siree Baba. We're not at Argo Studios. We're not even in that time zone. We're coming to you from Valley of the Sun Jewish Community Center in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. Shalom, friends. Shalom.